0: Welcome to the Saxophone History Podcast, a thoughtful, researched, and slightly irreverent look at the history of our instrument. I'm your host, Andrew D. Meyer. My guest today is Erica Durham, and this is kind of a follow up episode to the one we did recently on Elise Hall. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, go back and do it now. Actually, it won't really matter, but it does make for kind of a nice arc if you do listen to them sequentially. Uh, hi, Erica. Hi, Andy. <laughs> In our episode on Elise Hall, we speculated on how the French military bands were responsible for bringing the saxophone to all corners of the globe. I also alluded to a battle of the bands between a typical French military band and one using, utilizing Adolf Sachs' new and improved instruments in Paris. Today we're going to talk about what I feel can only rightly be called the original ultimate Sachs battle.
1: Ooh, I like the way that sounds. Yeah. Ultimate <laughs> <sax battle. laughs> I feel like it's also like the title of a future um, reality TV show yeah
0: like when they run out of like uh like slutty island things it (laughs) becomes
1: so So this is never happening
0: (laughs) well i don't know i don't know if that would be more or less interesting probably not yeah (laughs) so to set the stage for the original ultimate sax battle we need to do a little digging into the father of it all Adolf sax I'm not going to do a ton of detail about his early life because there are a number of podcasts out there that have already done really deep dives into him. Um, In fact, his early life was so crazy that some uh, kind of general interest history podcasts have covered him. um, And it's pretty funny to hear some of them talk about the saxophone. Like I recently heard a a group of Australian comedians like talking about (laughs) the idea of a saxophone quartet as uh, air quotes a bit much.
1: Oh my God. (laughs)
0: They're like, well, we don't want to hear four saxophones together. Like, that that idea is ludicrous, you know?
1: (laughs) They're imagining that, like, super poppy jazz sax sound. Just a screech and just four people doing that. (laughs) I don't want to hear that either.
0: No one wants to hear that. (laughs) So um, we will, however, do a brief overview of his young life, as some of it is just too good to pass up. Uh, as usual, I'll post all of the sources for this podcast on my website. That's andrewdmeyer.com, M-E-Y-E-R. Uh, and I also want to draw attention to one primary source. Uh, it's a book called The Devil's Horn by Michael Sedgill. I hope I'm saying that right, Segel or Segel, Segel, I think. Uh, it's a really great read, and it traces the instrument's history and gives a great deal of detail about today's subject. So Antoine Joseph, a.k.a. Adolph Sachs, was born on the 6th of November, 1814 in Dinant, Belgium, to Charles Joseph and Marie Joseph. His father was appointed as Belgium's chief instrument maker, and young Adolph practically grew up in his father's workshop. By the age of 15, he had made two flutes out of ivory, uh, which was something that was considered very difficult to do at the time, and entered them into competitions. (laughs) Adolf had two nicknames around town, Les Petites Sacks, and mm-hmm. one more indicative of his disaster-prone nature, Les Révenants, or the Ghost Child.
1: Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I don't really know anything about him, so this is like all oh, new cool. to me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> this is, this is going to blow you away then. So throughout his childhood, Adolf suffered a series of somewhat spectacular accidents, leading his mother to say, quote, The child is doomed to suffer. He won't live, unquote.
1: That's his own mother. (laughs) She doesn't even believe. (laughs) He's like, he's not going to make it. (laughs) He's not going to make it.
0: He's a disaster. (laughs) So at two years old, he fell down a flight of stairs, hitting his head on a rock and was left unconscious for a week. The following year... yeah. The following year he nearly poisoned himself in his father's workshop when he quickly downed what he thought to be milk, which turned out to be sulfate of zinc. He was also Which is like, what? Um I I tried to figure it out earlier. I there's like a version of sulfate of zinc that you can take if you're like zinc deficient. Uh-huh. But it sounds like he probably took like like way more than than a person should take, or also And this a- is
1: probably like a chemical for doing yeah, things it, in the
0: workshop it probably had something to do with metal work like it, yeah sulfate of zinc like <laughs> clean something off of brass or you know something
1: yeah like i also just really quick want to go back to falling down the stairs hitting your head in a rock and being unconscious for a week which is also called a coma i believe <laughs> yeah
0: it's super bad for you to be unconscious for that long <laughs> yeah okay go on i mean this is like you know what, what is this like mid 19th century uh early 19th century medicine so i think they're like well w- we'll just let him sleep it off
1: totally yeah
0: i don't know <laughs> so he was also nearly poisoned to death with white lead copper oxide and arsenic uh, those were on separate occasions he swallowed a large needle which he managed to pass without causing internal damage, <laughs> burned himself severely by falling on a stove, and was thrown across the workshop during a gunpowder explosion. Oh my God. A heavy slate roof tile fell on his head whilst he was out walking one day and left him unconscious yet again at 10 years old holy shit and finally he was found floating face down and unconscious in a pool <laughs> in the river by a local villager oh my god
1: <laughs> I would love to see like all of these things done like in like a slapstick like real like one after another and it I- just ending with him face down in, in the river <laughs>
0: I'd I'd like to see like a, a cartoon strip of each one of these things like like uh-huh. preferably like do you know the cartoon uh, Ziggy, mm-hmm. like, you know from the newspapers like maybe that yeah. style of animation.
1: He's <laughs> <laughs> just really round. <laughs>
0: yeah, he's really round. Yeah. Stuff keeps like hitting him on the head, and that's uh-huh. like, really annoying him. You know,
1: <laughs> it's great.
0: So yeah, a, a rough start in life to say the least. Um. So, where he's from, Dinant was famous for a, a hammered plate of yellow copper, brass, or bronze called Dinant Dinanderie. Okay. Uh, work with these different metals had developed in the late medieval period around Dinant, and seems uh, seems to be the first place in Europe where brass work, like, really developed to a high level. Mm-hmm. this this is a specifically hand-beaten brass work which is very similar to the methodology used to shape tubes uh, uh, and bells of brass instruments mm-hmm. which i just think is really interesting because like the the roots and the sort of basic skills needed to make brass instruments developed in dinant like 800 years before sax comes on the scene like yeah. these instruments w- would have i guess been developed somewhere but I've always sort of wondered, like, like, why did not? Like, that seems like, you know, it's just a, a random place. But it turns out that they've had all these, like, kind of master brass working skills there that have developed nearly a millennia. earlier. I
1: have a, kind of a stupid question. Yeah. Um, Where does brass come from? Is it something you make or is it something you mine or uh
0: brass oh yeah this would be a good one for listeners to leave comments uh correcting right that. yeah
1: just let them do it
0: <laughs> is is brass an alloy of bronze
1: and something else or is bronze an alloy of brass and something else I don't know but my my question kind of has to do with like is that something that maybe exists in a bigger way in that area of the world than it does elsewhere
0: Oh, maybe. Yeah, that I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were just like, they found all this metal in the earth and they were like, "Uh, let's hit it with hammers until it... uh, (laughs) I don't don't know, I'll see what happens. Yeah, kind of. They were like, they just did that long enough and then they're like, all right, what should we call this? And they're like, saxophone, done. (laughs) (laughs) Done. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you've kind of... Got to the punchline already and stolen the story, but no.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to happen one of these days.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So Adolf somehow survives his childhood injuries and finds himself in his father's workshop. He displays natural gifts for the work and far more ambition than his father. He displays his ivory flutes as well as a clarinet at the 1830 Brussels Industrial Exposition and leaves the judges highly impressed. He reinvented a fingering system for the soprano clarinet which most likely means he was just adding more keys to it and making it more chromatic mm-hmm. um clarinets in the 18th century weren't really like chromatic instruments so you had to have one in like every key kind of like harmonics oh. you know huh. like it's it's still you see it that way um like in like beethoven scores and stuff it'll say like clarinet and c or clarinet and d even though i think most people will play everything on a or b flat mm-hmm. To mm-hmm. be written like for, it's dumb
1: yeah that's <laughs> it, that's interesting though Do you said it was a he was doing that specifically to a soprano clarinet
0: yeah which wow. i guess i think like all the like b flat a like whatever we call those like soprano clarinets
1: right i'm was it a much smaller instrument before like than it is now
0: No, it was like pretty much the same size. But if you look at um, ones from the early 18th century, like, um, or 19th century, they don't have a lot of keys. Like, it it almost looks like a recorder with like a clarinet mouthpiece kind of thing. And like, maybe there's like one or two keys kind of, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: it's just, it's just sort of like, like six holes or whatever, seven holes. Right. And so without, without keys, like you can't really do anything chromatic. I think it's sort of like, like a, like a Celtic flute
1: or something like that would be, you know. Anderson,
0: right so his first major success comes with the reinvention of the bass clarinet until this point the instrument had been viewed as highly unreliable uh i don't know if you've ever played a really high-end modern <laughs> bass clarinet like a summer privilege or a buffet prestige but the amount of engineering that goes into overcoming the just unwieldiness of such a large and goofy instrument is is quite astonishing mm-hmm The difference between an instrument like that and and a lesser quality one from even a few decades ago is like comparing like a hot air balloon with like a fighter jet. (laughs)
1: That's an instrument I've never played, but I have witnessed people getting very fucking pissed, like in the process of trying to play this instrument. It's like a just
0: really wonky... And and yeah, like modern instruments just have like all this stuff that like corrects all these things automatically for you. It's like a, right. a computer made of wood and silver or something. But yeah, so like before he comes on the scene, like the bass clarinet just like, I don't know, it sounds like it's a nightmare, it's just right. it's like it's useless. So his invention takes off all over Europe and, and people really begin to take notice of uh, not just the instrument, but of the inventor. Ironically, even though sax is coming into prominence all over Europe and getting all this great recognition from clarinet players, he's feeling kind of bummed out because the judges at the Belgian expositions keep refusing to give him first prizes. It seems everyone knows he should be winning the first prizes because his instruments are are just like so much better than everyone else's, but the judges think he's too young for the honor and that awarding him would deprive him of anything to strive for in the future.
1: Wow. Yeah. (laughs) But so how like what age range is he when this is happening? When he's um, too young? I
0: th- I think he must be like late teens, early twenties. Gotcha. Um, I I don't really know for sure. Which I mean, in that time, like I think if you make it to nineteen, you're like you're like a full grown man. Like you're
1: totally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get your first job at like age four.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, he's he's already had a decade and a half of like work experience and. <laughs> um <laughs> so the story is that sax was preparing to exhibit the very first saxophone at an exposition in belgium when one of his rival instrument makers sees it and in a fit of jealous rage he just kicks it across the room he just boots it wow. damaging it so badly uh, that it was unable to be displayed and following this sax packs up in disgust and sets off for paris with just like 30 francs in his pocket
1: abandons the shop what's that he abandons the shop
0: he abandons what's it I'm, I'm done with with <laughs> <laughs> so anytime you read stories like these about adolf sachs and there are loads where people try to assassinate him blow up his workshop smash his instruments and just generally wreck his life Damn. there never seems to be any account of reprisal michael sedgel describes him as brash arrogant handsome with a lush full beard and bedroom eyes I love that. Adolf Sachs was the embodiment of the fiery 19th century romantic. Sachs is quoted as saying, in life, there are conquerors and the conquered. I prefer to be among the first. Yet there doesn't seem to be any, any stories of him like fighting back against these guys that are, you know, wrecking his work and his workshop. And mm-hmm. I wonder whether he just didn't bother because he was so focused on on his work, or whether like the lens of history has just sort of uh, ignored like his petty revenge stuff to make him more sympathetic. Yeah. Or right. There's no way to know, but I I love these description uh, descriptions of him as this like fiery romantic uh, with bedroom.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't hear that too often. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't think
0: I've ever described someone as having bedroom eyes, uh, but I'm going to look for people that have bedroom eyes now. <laughs>
1: they are out there.
0: Yeah, we're out there.
1: This is like a it's a different version of like resting bitch face. It's like just resting bedroom eyes. Like you're not. not trying.
0: Like yeah, they just,
1: you just look like that. <laughs> you
0: you're just like reading your newspaper on your streetcar or whatever, and you like look up, and people are like, "Oh, bedroom eyes, guy." <laughs> <laughs> So Sax sets his sights on Paris. He had previously received praise from the composers Abenac, Meyerbeer, and Aleve uh, when he'd shown them prototypes of his new instrument. And he's basically like, uh, Paris is enlightened. People are going to understand me and everyone's going to appreciate me there. I'm going to leave Belgium and just leave all this depressing bullshit behind. I'm going mm-hmm. to Paris. So once he gets to Paris, Sax shows his instruments to Hector Berlioz, who's immediately taken with them. Mm Braylos wrote a bunch of articles promoting the new instrument and saying things like, quote, it cries, sighs, and dreams. It it possesses a crescendo and can gradually diminish its sound until it is only an echo of an echo of an echo until its sound becomes crepuscular.
1: What does that word mean?
0: Uh, I think does crepuscular mean like, uh, like cat-like? I'm going to look it up. Okay. I feel like you usually hear it uh describing like a like some sort of cat kind of animal and they're crepuscular
1: i do love um uh how do you spell that
0: <laughs> c-r-e-p-u-s-c-u-l-a-r esk is not a sound that we have Of
1: resembling or relating to twilight of an animal appearing or active in twilight okay that's really beautiful
0: <laughs> yeah that's a good word we should uh bring crepuscular back into
1: yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna make an effort
0: well you're going out tonight uh, you, you can find a reason to <laughs> oh don't totally <laughs> i'm gonna be so you crepuscular. Hate the room.
1: <laughs> i'm not gonna explain what it means to anybody i'm just gonna <laughs> use it like an asshole <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah that will be really endearing to everyone
1: mm-hmm. i'll do the thing where like i like put words in someone else's mouth and i'll say like this night is so crepuscular don't you agree
0: <laughs> yeah yeah, and they won't know what it mean so they'll have to be like what or be like shut up <laughs> <laughs> So, so Berlioz is also the one who actually names the saxophone. Uh, he calls it Le Saxophone, and Sax, being somewhat of an egomaniac, just loves it. And he's like, cool, it's called the saxophone. That's good enough for me.
1: I'm um, Sorry to go back to this, but how did his last name become Sax instead of Joseph?
0: Um, his his dad's last name is Sax. His,
1: uh... Oh, yeah, I Oh yeah. that. I thought you had said that his he was I born. Maybe, in- I,
0: maybe I just uh, left off his his last name.
1: Yeah. So that's the, his born name is.
0: Yeah, that's his his family name, and actually, interestingly enough, he so he has a bunch of kids later in life. I think he has like five kids, five or six kids, and he refuses to marry their mother, and <laughs> he's just like a total like anti-establishment guy is uh-huh. to marry their mother, and he refuses to give them his name. Huh. Which I don't. I don't know how that works. Like, if you're a kid and you're just born, and like your dad's like, "Nope, you can't have my name." So, I like, what name do you have?
1: I think when you're born, your parents can name you whatever they want. I think. I mean, maybe it has to be one of their last names. I don't know. Oh.
0: But so he just, like, he just, he just refuses to give his kids his name until I think one of his daughters like wanted to get married or something. And then he was like, he was like, okay, you can be called sax now.
1: Well, wow. that's like, it's so, such a particular thing too. It's so weird.
0: <laughs> it's, it's really weird.
1: <laughs> I love this dude. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, it's like good thing going on.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So in the early part of the 19th century, French military bands refused to hire professional musicians and were really poorly funded, uh, making them drastically inferior to their Prussian and Austrian counterparts. Mm -hmm. When Austria and Poland finally defeated the last of the Ottoman invasions, they took a bunch of exotic instruments from the Ottoman Janissary bands that accompanied troops on their military campaigns as part of their victory spoils. These included uh, a lot of percussion instruments, like cymbals and bells, as well as an oboe-like instrument called the urag, urag, and a cutting horn called the burr. The idea behind these bands was that they're so fierce-sounding that they could sort of like whip troops up into a frenzy for battle. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: An article in L'Illustration... Described the rank amateurish of the French bands by saying, "Whoever heard an Austrian or Prussian band surely broke into laughter upon hearing a French regimental band."
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the French people are so prissy. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> sorry, French people, I didn't mean it.
0: <laughs> Great stereotype. Yeah. <laughs> I, just just before we started recording this, I was watching. Uh, so it's the World Cup on right now and england and france are playing and france is just like just beaten up on the english uh oh yeah yeah they were not looking oh good. i
1: have heard they have a really good team don't they yeah,
0: yeah well they they won the world cup last time i think and yeah they look really good and yeah. it could be an interesting
1: uh, it's a total aside um, you may want to just cut this whole thing I but i want to say it to you anyway there's i just listened to something about the about the french football team all right because it's an incredibly diverse team and france has a lot of issues like many other countries uh with their their french identity and like what that means and if you if you were born there but you're not uh like many generations established and like are you french or are you not and i guess their their football team is making um the idea of like having ownership of Frenchness like much more widely accepted yeah. if you are like not just a white person who has had like you know many generations behind you in that country it's just kind of cool like the the way that it's like having a positive effect
0: yeah. on their culture. I've I've heard a bunch of stuff about that this week as well and that's a big issue here in England as well because it's it's the same sort of thing like a lot of a lot of these players that are on the national team like come from, um, you know, formerly like colonized areas or whatever. Right. And same thing with the French team. And it's like, actually, I I was thinking this was kind of a sad thought, but earlier today I was like, you know, whatever happens in this match, like, I hope this doesn't happen, but it seems likely that one of the countries will be hurling some pretty horrible racial abuse at, at the black players on the losing team, you know, whether it's, whether it's here in England or in France, right. Cause that seems to be what happens every year. Um, mm-hmm. in these international things. Yeah. It's a bummer.
1: Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> uh, no
0: that's good stuff. So yeah. So these French bands, uh, notoriously lousy and sax, Perhaps uh, noting this disparity as an opportunity sets his sights on the French military bands as an outlet for gaining some acceptance for his new family of saxophones, as well as his own uh, improved brass instruments. Basically, Sax thought he could improve the quality of these bands because his instruments sounded so much better and so much louder than the ones they were already using. Mm. Um, In addition to his saxophones, he also developed some instruments, such as uh, one called the saxo-tromba, which was uh, designed to be played easily whilst riding a horse. Love it. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of the criticisms I've always had of the saxophone is it's very difficult to play, you know, <laughs> on horseback. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, I can't believe it, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, not just
0: for the player, but also like you know, the bell is like right in the horse's ear, which is like really
1: important for <laughs> <to> the horse. <laughs>
0: being like you know notoriously calm and cool uh, animals
1: exactly <laughs> yeah. so in
0: 1844 Sachs sends a letter to the french war minister describing how he would reorganize the french military bands he claimed that the piccolos clarinets and oboes which were considered melody instruments were no good for outdoor performance Likewise, the ophicleides and bassoons uh, were also what he termed fair weather instruments, and therefore not suitable to military use. Mm -hmm. It seems. I agree with him. What's that? I agree with him. Yeah, yeah. It it seems (laughs) ludicrous now, but apparently it was quite common to be just marching about in the rain while playing the bassoon. Crazy. Like that's insane, right?
1: I mean, it's funny. This this whole conversation is funny to me because when I was in high school and I played saxophone mm. and when it was marching band time, every person who played a woodwind instrument would bail on that instrument and we all played brass instruments. Like I played the baritone and like people oh. would play like mellophone or play trumpet or trombone who were like in normal circumstances were like clarinet players or saxophone players. Yeah. Because you didn't, I like, a, it was nerdy to play the saxophone in marching band. And B, which oh, is just like, marching band. <laughs> it's so, yeah, that's like, there's just so many layers here. Yeah. And then B, if it is at all wet outside, it's much more difficult to play a woodwind instrument, period, much less a bassoon or an oboe, totally. you know? Yeah. So, but I just love it. Like that's my context in life for this. And like what he's doing is saying like, you got to put the bassoons inside and play the saxophones outside. Yeah, yeah.
0: you <laughs> got to get rid of the ditch the bassoons, man. Bring the saxophones yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, Rock, pedal black. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Actually, like I um when Queen Elizabeth died this summer, I was like watching the funeral, and they had like they were like sure enough, a bunch of bassoons were like marching around like in Westminster or whatever, like down by Buckingham Palace. Oh shit! Yeah, and I was like that just seems dumb. Like, I mean, totally. it was a day or whatever, but.
1: It's just odd. Uh, yeah. yeah. I,
0: I guess I wasn't even really aware that you could like play a bassoon standing up.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm like just thinking about, does it have like a harness around the waist that it like has, it's like held by a cup in the bottom or something.
0: <laughs> I, it you must know? be like a, like a neck strap kind of situation.
1: Yeah. I like my idea better, but...
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they just like... Yeah, they somehow attach like half a chair without the legs to you, so you have to walk around with this chair strapped to your back. <laughs> strapped to the chair.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Why not, right? Why not? Why not? We can do anything. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we can do anything. So Saxon's solution was to was to fill the band's with his sax horns, which were basically bugles of different sizes with piston valves and his bass saxophones. Mm. So this, promo- uh, this proposal, rather, uh, pretty much fell on deaf ears. The Parisians basically thought sax to be an outsider attempting to change their traditions. Loudest amongst these opponents were the local instrument makers who stood to lose the most if their instruments were tossed on the scrap heap in favor <laughs> of these foreign inventions. Segel describes how Parisian instrument makers would have independent artisans from areas outside of Paris, manufacture individual parts for their instruments, which were then assembled and packaged in Paris, like basically like the you know keys or, or whatever are being made in, in, in these random towns and then brought into Paris and, and assembled there. So while this is in keeping with manufacturing ideals of the industrial revolution, which was currently underway, it tended to stifle innovation. New ideas were far more likely to come from someone like Sachs, who undertook the entire process of creating new instruments himself. This meant that the adoption of new instruments threatened not only those instrument manufacturers who did the final assemblies in Paris, but also the entire supply chains that stretched out of the city into a variety of cottage industries across more rural France. Mm. Though there was a great deal of popular opposition to Saxe's proposed reforms, he had a number of friends in high places on his side. Sax managed to use uh, the influence of his friends to force the creation of a commission on how to improve the bands. Michel Carafa, the director of the Gymnase de Musique Militaire, which was the establishment that trained the majority of the military musicians and also Saxe's chief rival, had also expressed the desire to improve the bands. Uh, His idea, however, was basically to add more of the instruments that they were already using and just kind of pad out the bands to improve their sound. Yeah. Lazy. Typical establishment. (laughs) (laughs) So the commission, which contained a number of acoustical experts, decided that an outdoor battle of the bands would take place and that popular decision would decide the winner.
1: Wow, I dig this. So yeah.
0: hard. So good. <laughs> this battle would pit the revolutionary outsider Adolf Sachs, who wanted to improve the bands by improving the instruments, against the establishment character michelle Carafa, who thought improvements could be made uh, by essentially doing more of what they're already doing. Phoning it in. Phoning it in. Yep. <laughs> Just keep cashing that check from the gymnase. Do whatever. <laughs> <laughs> The event was to take place on the 22nd of April at the Champ de Mar at the Ecole Militaire, which is now the grounds surrounding the Eiffel Tower. More than 20,000 people came out to see and hear the Showtown. For context, in 2022, the average attendance at a Major League Baseball game was about 26,000 people. Oh my God. So imagine a Major League <laughs> Baseball stadium full of fans watching a large game competition. <laughs>
1: Freaking nerds!
0: Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, I mean, what else was going on? Like
1: nothing. Misery,
0: like, literally. Uh, <laughs> like trying to pull soot off of your face. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, like, I don't know. Churning butter. Churning butter. Yeah. Just miserable. <laughs> so, sax and Carafa had agreed that each of their bands would have forty-five musicians. But on the day, someone bribed seven members of sax's ensemble not to show up, including the two bass saxophones, a critical component of his improvement. <laughs> Undeterred, the feisty sax grabbed two of his instruments, possibly including one of his B-flat bass saxophones, and entered the fray. Hmm. The format was that each band should play a piece chosen by the commission in the first round, followed by a selection from each band leader in the second round. After the first round, the crowd erupted and overwhelmingly chose Sax's band as the victors and demanded to hear more from the novel group. Even though the bribes had reduced the size of Sax's group, his instruments could be heard throughout the assembled crowd, which would have stretched quite far back through the parade grounds, while Carafa's group only managed to be audible for the first several rows of spectators. So you have to imagine this enormous crowd surrounding the bands, and there's no amplification, there's no, like, like grandstands or anything it's basically right. just like twenty thousand people standing in a field like in a circle around two bands right so That's I, wild. I, yeah like the sound would just you know it would dissipate quite quickly so like i wonder if people in the back like even heard the other guy's band or if they're just like thought they were just standing around like waiting for some entertainment to happen and finally uh-huh. like, sax's band comes through and they're like well yeah like we can yeah. like do something yeah yeah <laughs> so with the popular victory the commission agreed that sax had won and several months later issued a report which recommended the addition of sax's baritone and bass saxophones as well as his sax horns into regimental bands sax had finally won the adoption of his instruments as well as critical and popular acceptance acceptance once these new instruments had been worked into the French bands, the newly invigorated ensembles were winning first prizes and competitions. The Prussian military followed suit, asking Sachs to inject its once proud ensembles with his revitalizing inventions. The E-flat baritone saxophone became the most popular and was adopted by Spanish, Italian, and Hungarian military bands. These militaries were responsible for the instrument gaining international exposure as they took it all over the world in the next few years. According to Segel, the saxophone was recognized as the sound of modernity and independence, an instrument that gave voice to the common man whose creative spirit was being stifled by the depersonalizing forces of the industrial revolution.
1: Hmm.
0: He also goes on to point out that the saxophone was a major hmm. part of virtually every musical development in the 20th century, including big band, swing, bebop, R&B, rock and roll, and and all the pop music like through the 80s and hmm. And it's interesting to me that uh, that Sedgel notes that the saxophone was perceived as an instrument of the common man when it was invented. Since in many ways, it, it's still found much more commonly in popular settings and, and still really hasn't been adopted into the orchestra in the way that it's inventor hey. desired. So winning the Battle of the Bands and the contracts to produce instruments for the various military bands didn't mean automatic acceptance of the saxophone. Since this change of instrumentation meant a lot of instrument producers would lose their work, many of them banded together, forming a group opposed to Adolf Sachs called the Association of United Instrument Makers. Their main tactic was to tie him up in court, basically, with spurious lawsuits designed to bankrupt him. <laughs> like <one> <laughs> it's just so petty. huh One example, like the association (laughs) steals one of his saxophones and scratches off the serial number and like just claims it as their own. And so they're like, like, no, we made this and you stole our idea. And like, (laughs) yeah, they know know they're not going to win, but they just keep doing this stuff because like, you know, it means that he has to show up to court and like pay a lawyer and and whatever. And there's like them together versus just one of him. So yeah. they, they can like string it out for a lot longer. So for the rest of his life, Saxons caught up in various battles, schemes and, and outright violence against him and his work. Following King Louis Philippe's deposition in 1848, Saxons were removed from military bands as one of the first actions of the New Republic. However, when Napoleon III overthrew the Second Republic, assuming dictatorial powers, the first law he passed only two days into his rule brought the saxophones back into the bands.
1: This, oh, seriously? Yeah. but So these two people, like, all these fucking things could be happening in this country. And there's like all these, I imagine, many, many, many much more important things going on. And they're like, my first is my first get act
0: back in the band
1: <laughs> <laughs> or get him out or get him back in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Jesus. <laughs> yeah.
0: So I, 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 don't know. I don't know what you know about Napoleon the third. Um, he's he, he was like a lifelong bumbler. Um, one of his first coup attempts, he, he, uh, he like kind of freaks out and just like shoots this guy in the mouth. Uh, because he like he got nervous, and also like they were all super drunk because they were really nervous, and uh, he's, he's like a lifelong bumbler. <laughs> but no, about, I didn't,
1: yeah. I don't know that. Yeah, That's amazing.
0: Yeah, uh, I think he's the worst of the Napoleons, okay, remembered as <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, he's got this reputation as, as being a real bumbler, but uh, bringing the saxophones back, that seems like real clear eyed leadership to me.
1: Absolutely, and first order of business.
0: Yeah, yeah. It it cannot wait. Real day one stuff. (laughs) So ultimately, Sachs was forced to declare bankruptcy three times and was essentially destitute at the end of his life. It must have been frustrating for the inventor to have his instruments received so well at the Battle of the Bands, only to end up battling his competitors who were totally unwilling to play fairly for the rest of his life. Mm Mm-hmm. In the Elise Hall episode, we spoke about her first teacher in Santa Barbara, who was simply described as a laborer, and we sort of speculated on why and mm. uh, how this person would have come to be playing, let alone teaching the saxophone at the turn of the century in California, Right. and, and the role that the military bands likely played in bringing the instrument to that area. So according to SEDGIL, uh, French troops were posted in Mexico. Um uh, uh, because Napoleon the Third kind of bumbles his way into uh, oh. dating Mexico. Basically, <laughs> I, I think the deal was he, uh, he like, it might've been one of his cousins or something, or I think one of the Habsburgs, he was like, hey, buddy, like, I want you to be the emperor of Mexico. And I think the deal was he, <laughs> he wanted them to like go mess around in Mexico so that like, like you know, their like their neighbors will be occupied or whatever, and like France wouldn't have to worry about fighting uh Prussia or whatever. Oh my God! <laughs> he's, like, he's like, you go over and, and just fuck around with Mexico. I'll send a bunch of troops over there to like get your back. It's gonna, be uh-huh.
1: cool. it's gonna be totally, cool. <laughs> it's gonna be great. <laughs> the
0: Mexicans like they just all they really want is like a German speaking king. That's like. You know, Mexico's like it's pretty cool, but they want a, a German-speaking king. Like everyone tells me that over there. So you. Go <laughs> to- it's nonsense, obviously. Wow. So he, yeah, so he sends a bunch of French troops over there, and they they have French bands, right? French military bands. So the saxophone's over there, and. Um, uh, and that's like in the 1860s, and so it quickly spreads throughout the region, and and the saxophone finds its way to every urban center in America by the turn of the century, which is like, um, you know, the turn of the 20th century, which is when Elise Hall is is just coming on the scene, um, right? Taking the lessons. So we still don't know much about the mysterious laborer/slash saxophone teacher of Santa Barbara, but it does seem very likely that the Battle of the Bands at the Champ de Mar, won by Adolf Sachs and his subsequent contracts to supply saxophones to the military bands played a big role in getting the instrument into his hands, as well as those of Elise Hall and all of the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Um toward the end of his life, Sachs kind of went off the rails. Um He drew up plans for an organ that would be so loud that it could be played from Montmartre and be heard all over Paris, as well as a cannon that would fire a projectile 11 yards wide and weighing 550 tons that was designed to level an entire city with one shot. Whoa! Uh, uh, Yeah. Naturally, (laughs) he called it the Saxo Cannon.
1: Very original.
0: Of course. (laughs) So I think we can just be glad that the militaries of the day adopted his musical inventions and not this monstrosity.
1: I'm trying to picture like what that would actually be like. It makes like, um, it makes like very little sense. (laughs) I
0: can't, I mean, I'm not a weapons knower, but I can't (laughs) imagine that you could fire a weapon that large without sort of like killing everything around it. Totally, yeah. You know, like, like when the space shuttle like blasts off or something. I think it doesn't it kill everything
1: within like a mile radius, like in the swamp or whatever, in in Cape Canaveral. I could see that, yeah, being a thing. I don't actually know that, but there's a reason why people are not allowed to be anywhere near it. You yeah, know?
0: I think it's just so loud that it like just kills everything. Uh, I might be
1: making that up. Anyway, <laughs> that's part of the uh,
0: the original ultimate sax battle. Amazing.
1: Yeah. I wonder um, if, uh, if one of the reasons why he wouldn't let his kids take his name is because, I mean, I'm, I'm also making this up, but do you think maybe he thought he was, like, cursed in some way? Like, he had all this bad shit happen to him as a kid. He has this, like, this, like amazing ability to, like, create these instruments and then, like, has one triumph. And then the rest of his life is just this, like, fuckery with, like, he's just being beaten down. It's
0: it's kind of interesting you say that. Like just earlier
1: today, actually, I was I was reading um,
0: in in that uh, Michael Sedgel book, and there's an interview, not really an interview with with Jean Marie Landex, where he he recounts um, a, a story that uh, Adolf had told to his brother. He was like, I had this dream. Where I was like, uh, I think he said he was a demon, or there were a bunch of demons that were like playing the saxophone, and the the saxophone was like summoning people into hell.
1: I uh, love that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's <so> good, right. <laughs> yeah. So okay. I don't. You know, it's possible. Like he, he certainly had that like romantic uh, sensibility about him, like that. Um, mm-hmm. I'm surprised he didn't just name his kids like saxo kid, like, (laughs) saxo boy, saxo girl, like, you know.
1: My other thought about this is, um, I think that this is correct, that, like, current day military bands, at least in the U.S., are pretty stationary. Like, they exist to, like, play events at the White House or, like, do whatever goes on in D.C. that requires a band. Yeah, I is think it that, is it the case that is, are are there like military bands that still travel with troops? Now, yeah,
0: yeah. I think there's I think there's different ones. So there's like there's like ones like what like, um, Pershing's own or like the the president's own or whatever. They're like basically just like concert bands. And then there's um, I think there are like ceremonial bands that march and like do formations and stuff.
1: Right, but they're I guess my question has more to or like my thought has more to do with like in the time that we're talking about um in the beginning of the nineteenth century when military bands were traveling with the military. They were like probably literally going on the same ships and like being in the same places.
0: Yeah, yeah as
1: the people who were like fighting and like doing whatever else like trying to like take over whatever
0: there's there are descriptions like in the american civil war of like you know the bands like playing like what like quick steps and waltzes and stuff to like you know like get not probably not waltzes but to like get the troops like marching like get some pep in their step as they're like going Mm -hmm. going to the meat grinder or whatever and then like which
1: means that they're like moving with them most likely yeah yeah
0: yeah because it's like uh, such an
1: interesting thing to think
0: about like they can only they can't be farther than you could like hear a bunch of oboes or something which is like <laughs>
1: right yeah,
0: what's, what's that like 60 yards or something <laughs> like
1: yeah so. it's just like so bizarre to think about like just like the, today's equivalent like if in afghanistan they sent over like a bunch of different bands yeah right to just like walk around with it like it's just like not the same not like people are just like i have headphones and i listen to whatever the fuck i want to yeah you know? well <laughs>
0: i guess like war <laughs> is so fundamentally different but... that's true yeah that's also true yeah like you're like sneaking through like building to building fighting block to block and like fallujah but you keep getting your position like given away because there's like a person <laughs> band, like sneaking up <laughs> <laughs> a oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> Not again come on Brian
0: <laughs> don't shoot the band, guys don't shoot the bears.
1: <laughs> yeah that's like that's kind of what I'm thinking like <laughs> Napoleon's yeah. got ball in Mexico and they're like okay don't shoot the guys with the brass stuff <laughs>
0: it, does, it does kind of make you wonder like I mean do they have some kind of status like like i guess you're not supposed to attack like uh like medical people in war right like Mm. but if i was like if there was an army coming to me and i saw like a band and i was like well that band's getting them all like hot and bothered to like come and kill us like like Mm -hmm. what if we just get rid of those guys and then we could yeah yeah it's wild i don't know well uh that's pretty much all i have for you um again, I'll I'll have a list of all the sources on my website. Uh, That's Andrew D. Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R.com. Yeah. Thanks, Erica.
1: Thanks, Andy. That was fun. Yeah.